welcome to the Movie Musing Show. I'm your host, MK, and for this very first episode, I'm very excited to discuss one of my favorite movies of all time, the 2004 Michael Mann film, Collateral. If you haven't seen this film yet, that's totally fine, but I would strongly suggest you to go and watch it before hearing the rest of this episode, as I'll be unpacking all the details, which means revealing some spoilers along the way. Alright, so before I kick off the episode and start discussing Collateral, I just wanted to throw in a little background details on not only this episode, but for the entirety of the channel. Considering how this is my first episode of my first ever podcast, I think it's wise to maybe let you guys know a little bit more about what to expect going forward. So this is not a movie review channel. I gotta throw in that disclaimer there. This is less of a movie review and more of a detailed discussion and kind of a love letter to some of my favorite movies of all time and some of my favorite filmmakers and the process of making the film that's being discussed, all the minor and major details and scenes and storylines, characters, you name it. Anything and everything that stood out to me or resonated with me that I enjoyed, I'll be talking about that here. I'll be throwing all the points out there. So there's not a lot of established structure or a proper order that I'll be adhering to mostly, but I'll try to make it make sense as much as possible for your sake, of course. So hopefully it's not a movie ramblings channel but it's not a movie review channel. It's a movie discussion channel. So with that out of the way, we can finally jump into the fun part of the episode, what you're probably here for, Collateral, the incredible Michael Mann masterpiece of a film. So despite the fact that this film is the proud owner of not one, but two Academy Award nominations, I still strongly believe that it isn't as popular as it should be. I mean, it received a 7.5 rating on IMDb. I think it will be a safe assumption to make that you probably know that 7.5 isn't low by any means, but it definitely isn't as high as I'd personally rate this film. And here are some reasons to support the statement I just so openly made and recorded and put on a podcast channel. Sprinkled with some trivia that I've organically collected throughout the years being the total movie nerd that I happen to be, luckily for you. The first point, or reason rather, I absolutely love this film is Jason Statham's cameo. Now I know what you're thinking, Did she just say Jason Statham? And yes, I did. I know you probably don't remember him being in this film. You might even be questioning it altogether, but I'm not making this up just to spice up this episode. I've got integrity and credibility, as you'll soon find out, hopefully, (laughs) if I play my cards right. But no, seriously, he's in this film. In the first scene of the film, at the airport, we're presented with... One of the two leads, Vincent, played by the one and only Tom Cruise, who bumps into a man, a character that is nameless, that only shows up once, played by, you guessed it, Jason 
freaking stay them. They exchange some quick pleasantries as you do, you know, small talk. And then these two guys grab each other's briefcases in such a nonchalant manner that it goes completely unnoticed by bystanders. And then they just part ways as they continue on walking, going about their own lives separated in separate directions. I told you I'm going to go detailed on this one. Now, you're probably like, what's the big deal? Jason Statham's in the movie, so what, right? But it's not just his presence that I find exciting. Although, that should be reason enough to be excited. I mean, it warrants excitement. It's, it's Jason Statham, come on now. But that's not the only reason why I'm mentioning this in this episode. As the first point, no less. It's the fact that he's delivering a package. I mean, doesn't that ring a bell? Remember Frank Martin, this character in this movie named The Transporter, released in 2002, what about two years before Collateral came out? And yes, Collateral is that old, I've done research, and I was shook that it was released in 2004 because I was in first grade when it came out, so I took a while to actually see it and understand what was happening. But yeah, since the fact that he's delivering a package is super Frank Martin. So it's highly speculated by movie lovers like myself and like yourself that this wasn't a coincidence, but rather an intentional, a deliberate nod to the Transporter series as essentially a package was delivered in the scene. Something else I find absolutely fascinating about this movie is the general vibe and tone or feel of the film. These two characters, the two leads, are just as alone as the other, aside from the fact that they come from drastically different worlds. And this vibe of loneliness in a big city, which in this film is the city of LA, is something that is so essential in building the general vibe of the film, I find. And the thing about the city of LA that just perfectly worked for this film is that its population is so diverse and vast. A serial killer could possibly be riding in a cab and the driver would be none the wiser. In fact, this sort of thing was exactly what inspired the screenwriter, Stuart Beatty, to write the story. He based it on his real-life experiences writing in the back of a taxi as a teenager. Who knew a story like that would be Oscar-nominated someday with an A-lister cast and directed by Michael Mann? So just a few minutes after meeting Vincent, Max played by Jamie Foxx, asks him if it's his first time in L.A. And Vincent replies with, no. Tell you the truth, whenever I'm here, I can't wait to leave. You know, sprawled out, disconnected. You know, that's me. You like it? It's my home. 17 million people. This is a country, the fifth biggest economy in the world, and nobody knows each other. I read about this guy who gets on the MTA here, dies. Six hours, he's riding the subway before anybody notices his corpse doing laps around L.A., people on and off sitting next to him. Nobody notices. 
I think it's safe to say that this is one of the best moments in the entire film, hands down. It reveals so much about Vincent, which I'll be delving deeper into shortly. I'll also be discussing the character of Max, of course. But just to talk about this moment as of now, the line is so well written and it foreshadows the ending. As if you remember, it's the last thing that Vincent ever says before kicking the bucket. Aside from the dialogue, which is like 90% of what makes it so special, has got to be the cinematography. LA could easily be regarded and taken as one of the main characters. If the city of LA could stand next to Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx as a part of the cast and the characters, I would buy that because it sets such a Travis Bickle kind of tone and vibe of a lonely night in a big city in which no one knows each other and honestly, nobody cares. And speaking more of the cinematography, the shots of the streets of LA, which you can't see listening to this, obviously, but you've seen the movie and you can go and watch it again. The scenes of the streets from the top, coupled with the excellent jazz playing in the background, is just absolute perfection. They could not have done that better. Speaking of Travis Bickle vibes, what's even more interesting, as I discovered reading more and more about this film, is that Stuart Beatty, the screenwriter that I briefly mentioned earlier, had New York City in mind for the story instead of LA. And subsequently, he wanted none other than Robert De Niro to play Max as a nod to his love for Taxi Driver, which is, of course, a great film in itself. But Michael Mann was definitely not on board considering Robert De Niro's aid, and I guess he just thought LA would be a better fit. I mean, another thing I want to mention about Michael Mann is that he worked with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. In the first film, they were acting alongside each other. And that was in another one of my absolute favorites of all time, the movie Heat. This was the first time they were acting alongside each other. Previously, they starred in The Godfather Part 2. But as you recall, if you've seen the film... Robert De Niro played the younger Vito Corleone, which is the father of Michael Corleone, played by, of course, Al Pacino. Iconic character, iconic series, iconic books as well. But that meant he couldn't act or have any scenes with Al Pacino directly. So Michael Mann's worked with Robert De Niro before. And I'm sure he had a lovely time, but I can totally see why he wasn't on board with this. LA is just such a better choice. They're both big cities and it could have worked on paper maybe, but I don't think it would be as good as it is now. So I for one am glad that that didn't happen. But that's not all. There's a third connection to Taxi Driver. They must really love the movie. (laughs) Martin Scorsese was actually about to direct the film, but he ultimately chose to skip out on the opportunity. I wonder how that film would have turned out, but I guess we'll never find out. I think a recent film that comes to mind has to be La La Land, 
another one of my favorites. I keep name dropping movies throughout this whole thing. The City of LA was such a huge integral part of that film. And I'll definitely be making an episode on La La Land and also one on Damien Chazelle and Justin Hurwitz, who just killed it on the soundtrack of that film. I'm a huge fan of those guys. I think these two films have that in common, with the obvious exception of genre, for one. I mean, La La Land is a musical set in Hollywood and collateral as well. You know what it is. I was researching this film a while back, and as an aspiring screenwriter, something Michael Mann said in an interview really inspired me. And he said, and I quote, I didn't like the screenplay. I didn't like the dialogue. I didn't like the writing. But if you took the screenplay and put it under an MRI or an x-ray machine and took a look at it, you realize this thing has beautiful, beautiful bones. It's one of the most beautifully constructed stories I'd had ever run into. And it was gem-like. And it all took place in one night. And the roles each guy played in the other's realization of himself. And it was just a beautiful piece of writing by Beattie. But I loved the story structure of it. So I rewrote it. I think... It's good to include that in this episode because not only is it inspiring to other writers or filmmakers or any sort of creators, I think it's also a great summary of all the things I love about this film coming from the man himself. Literally, the man himself. Yes, there are going to be a lot more lame jokes and puns just like that one, so be warned if you're thinking of following this podcast. So with Jason Statham's cameo and the integral key element that the city of LA served to the film's core and identity and vibe, I think it's time to get into the main characters of the film that really carry the story forward. I gotta start with Tom Cruise as Vincent. Although it was Jamie Foxx's portrayal as Max that landed the Oscar nomination, I think this is Tom Cruise's best role, and you can seriously fight me on this. He's such a well-written, a well-rounded, fleshed-out character. I mean, he's just the perfect assassin, the perfect contract killer. He blends in. He's charming. He's so quick in his movements. It's like he's almost invisible. And this movie does not have superpowers, so that's the superpower of Tom Cruise. He trained extensively for this, for all the fighting scenes and the stunts. They're excellently executed, I gotta point out. The hard work he put in definitely paid off. What I love about the character of Vincent is that he's all business. It's nothing personal. The people that he has to murder is just a job to him. Just another task, another tick mark on his to-do list of the day. And he wants to do a good job. He wants to succeed in his career and he thinks there's nothing wrong with that. So I think in his mind, 
is just normal. I don't think he quite understands why Max is just so disturbed by it all. It's just another day for him and he's kind of pissed off that it doesn't go the way it normally goes because he comes off as a perfectionist and this is just a mess he has to clean up and he can't do it alone because he can't leave Max to be on his own. He doesn't trust him to just run off and not say anything so he has to, someone who's kind of like a lone wolf and antisocial, he has to socialize and work with this unwilling partner who's just shocked and disturbed by it all. So it's, it's a hard night on the job for Vincent. I kind of feel bad for him in that sense. Maybe the best thing about this character is that he's 100% honest. I mean, the guy wasn't supposed to fall on top of the cab, but it happened. And just like a jazz musician, they had to improvise. It was just one of those things, you know. And speaking of jazz, he loves jazz. And that specifically was a huge plus for me, not just for the character of Vincent, but for the entire film, because I'm just a huge jazz fan. And that made me like the character a lot more. So I don't know what that says about me, but it's definitely not anything good. I love how I'm describing Vincent as just like this regular person that I might even know. Like, oh, it's great. Like, he's all business. It's nothing personal. He just kills people, but it's all right, you know? And he loves jazz. Like, but no, seriously, this guy is, he's good at his job. He doesn't usually bother anyone except for the people he has to murder, but he doesn't even know them before he gets assigned the task. It's none of his business why someone is hiring to get someone else murdered. And he doesn't bother to ask because he's honestly not concerned about that side of the trade. If we talk about Vincent, we got to talk about Jamie Foxx's Max. I can definitely see how Jamie Foxx was nominated for an Oscar for this role. I mean, I'm not a firm believer of the Academy or the Oscars. That's a whole episode worth of opinions and information that I might make, might not make. I haven't totally decided yet, but that's beside the point. I get why they would point out and want to reward Jamie Foxx for this role. He truly brings the character of Max to life in the bestest way. I mean, the character of Max is just so empathetic and so warm. You just cannot help but feel bad for the guy. He goes through such a whirlwind of a night and he doesn't seem to have much control in his life. That's probably why he's so OCD about the cleanliness of his cab and how organized he is. I mean, remember that scene in the film when right before the dead body falls on top of his cab, he's just reaching over to open up his briefcase and the briefcase is super organized and everything is in its right compartment and it's clean as well, it's pristine. And the whole cab, the interior is super clean and taken care of. And he reaches out and I think he pulls out a sandwich or something. I, I did promise details, so I'm, I'm getting there. It's kind of crazy how much, like the tiniest detail that's coming up in my mind as I record this. I just really love this film, you guys. But he pulls out a sandwich and he's eating it and nothing's falling over. And then bam, this dead body falls on his cab. And just like the windshield glass shatters, 
I feel like his whole being shatters in a sense. All of this orderliness that he's cultivated that sort of keeps him in place and allows him to escape from whatever is going wrong in his life, which seems to be a lot, which I'll get into in a bit. Everything sort of shatters the moment that happens, and he's just at a loss immediately. It's like someone pulled away his comfort blanket that he was clutching so tightly, afraid of what's out there, just trying to escape it all, and it's just yanked out of his hands in the scene. I think it's a beautiful piece of writing and piece of film, and of course, incredible work by Jamie Foxx, who I'm a huge, huge fan of. I keep fangirling about everyone involved in this, but I really do love all of their work, and especially Jamie Foxx, because he's so multi-talented. He can direct, sing, rap, produce, play the piano, be hilarious and charismatic in almost any situation you can throw him into. He impersonated Jennifer Hudson singing like a nursery rhyme or something on the Jimmy Fallon show, like the Tonight Show. He can do anything. There's literally nothing I believe he cannot do. So in this film, he just plays this cabbie whose life just turns on its head. This fateful night, he meets Tom Cruise's Vincent. Well, why did you kill me? Well, the cabbie's not letting I get back. Sigmund Freud meets Dr. Ruth. Ask the question. Paper towels, a clean cab, the little company someday. And what you got saved? I didn't have a business. Someday, someday my dream will come. One night you'll wake up and you'll discover it never happened. It's all turned around on you. It never will. Suddenly you are old. It didn't happen. And it never will because you were never going to do it anyway. You're pushing in a memory that zone out in your barco lounger, being hypnotized by daytime TV for the rest of your life. You talked to me about murder. All it ever took was a down payment on a Lincoln Town car. That girl, you can't even call that girl. What the fuck are you still doing driving a cab? I think most of us can relate to how Max is trying so hard to set things in motion and to follow his dreams, but is just completely failing to do so. Another scene that I really think showed off Max's personality and, and sort of his caring side is earlier on in the film, right before I believe he, he meets Vincent. He meets the character of Annie, this stressed out lawyer played by Jada Pinkett Smith. And he reveals that he keeps sort of a vacation card a postcard. It's just a nice scenic picture that he escapes to and he keeps it in his visor in his cab. He pulls it down to look at it whenever the world gets too much for him. And he gives this to Annie, the stranger that just sat in his cab for a couple of minutes. When he hears that she has this tough case coming up the next day that she's freaking out about. And I think that's very sweet and Again, it just makes you feel really bad for this guy because you know what he's going to go through in the rest of the film if you're watching it for the second or whatever, however many times you've seen it after the first time. Another thing in that scene that I really liked and picked up 
Max is a really smart guy. He has all these perfectly calculated cap roots that he shows off to not only Annie but also Vincent throughout the film. And when he's literally thrown off into the deep end, into the criminal underworld, when Vincent forces him to go meet Javier Bardem's character while posing as Vincent, because which is his boss, by the way, I forgot to mention. A boss that has never met Vincent in person and doesn't know that he's played by Tom Cruise and not Jamie Foxx. So he has to really transform into this other character, Max, pretending to be Vincent. And it seems like this guy is good in high-pressure situations. And of course, when he runs from Vincent at the hospital when they have to go meet his mom and Vincent tags along. I mean, I wouldn't want to have someone like Vincent meet either of my parents, especially if they're in a hospital. He handled that so well too, but he just breaks down and he starts to run and he takes the briefcase from Vincent's hands and he throws it on the road and it gets run over. And then he has to go replace it by meeting Vincent's boss, pretending to be Vincent. And his boss happens to have never met Vincent, doesn't know what he looks like, and is played by Javier Bardem. It's just, there's a lot of good moments in this film. I can't even mention them all. I mean, the fact that Mark Ruffalo is in this as the cop, Ray, the detective that's after Vincent, and is just missing Vincent in the scenes. Like, he's at the hospital, but he doesn't know that Vincent's right next to him in the elevator. There's just a lot of tension. And then they run into this club where there is a shootout. It's all very John Wick kind of vibe in that sense. It is an action film. There's a lot of action elements in this, which I enjoy. And this is way before John Wick's time. So I think it, they probably got inspired by this. Speaking of John Wick, I definitely have to make an episode on John Wick and Chad Stahelski and all of that. There's a lot to unpack there as well. I've brought up a lot of points so far, but I think the selling point, the true selling point of this film, for me at least, has to be the ending. That ending is just so jarring and it just, it's unsettling and it's poetic. It's honestly beautiful and done so well that I have to keep it as a separate point. At the next stop. Hey, Max. The guy gets on the MTA here in LA and dies. They get everybody on notice. think anybody would notice that line this has got to be one of the greatest movie lines of all time i love how vincent is just so accepting and matter of fact about his ultimate demise at the hands of max in this epic shootout on a subway he's just as accepting and almost indifferent to his end as he is on any other night of his job, I think, even though we only see one night of both of these characters. The storytelling satisfyingly 
comes full circle with the story Vincent shared in the beginning of this film. That was the first scene that I added into this episode when he discusses his disdain for LA as being too sprawled out and disconnected, as he put it. And that eventually becomes his story. To be honest, whenever I watch this movie again, and I've seen it a couple of times, if you can't tell already, and whenever I get to this ending, I just have this urge to chuck Oscars at Tom Cruise's face. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, not the face, because that's the moneymaker. But damn, can this man act. I mean, geez. He acted the hell out of this scene. Also, the soundtrack is just impeccable. When the subway starts moving and his corpse begins to do, and I quote, laps around LA, it's just chilling to the core in a really poetic sort of way. On the subject of soundtracks, Hans Zimmer was actually going to compose one for Collateral, but he ended up backing out just like Martin Scorsese backed out due to schedule conflicts. And I'm a really big Hans Zimmer fan, and I know that's not a personality trait. Everybody loves Hans Zimmer. I don't think I've met a single soul that had an issue with Hans Zimmer. No complaints. He's always delivering epic soundtracks and making movies happen. I mean, just look at his work with Christopher Nolan, who I'm just obsessed with. I think most of my episodes will be about Chris Nolan movies. Sorry, not sorry. But for this film, it just it didn't work out with his schedule because he's a regular human being who has schedule issues. It's good to know. But he, I mean, this movie was in good hands either way because James Newton Howard stepped up and he's actually worked with Hans Zimmer. He's behind a lot of the movies that we all know and love. Nightcrawler, The Dark Knight, Batman Begins, I Am Legend. I can name drop for hours on end. He's got a great career and he's nominated for so many Oscars as well. I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm glad that whoever ended up working on this film decided to work on this film because it's just, it's a really great story. And it's all, and it all takes place in a single night in LA. And that's the beauty of it. Something that I really admire about Michael Mann's films, particularly Collateral and Heat, two films that I've been mentioning several times throughout this episode, one the episode is about, of course, is that at face value or on surface level, these two films can really come off as run-off-the-mill action movies with a stellar cast, an A-lister cast. But if you look deeper and you really analyze the characters and how well-layered and fleshed out they are, you can really appreciate it as a character study and sometimes as a drama genre rather than just an action movie. I think most people grew up watching these films with it playing in the background on cable or something and they didn't really enjoy it or notice or acknowledge the deeper layers that exist just as you unravel the first few layers. The versatility and how dynamic that makes these films is just spectacular and really inspiring. And that's mostly what makes me gravitate towards Michael Mann's movies. I hope that the next time you decide to watch Collateral, after hearing this episode, you are now 
well equipped to really notice these intricacies and deeper elements of this amazing film and maybe even enjoy it more than you did before. That's what I kind of want to do with this channel. I want to dig deep into movies and really present them in angles or fresh new perspectives that you may not have seen them in. That's what I kind of want to achieve with this channel. I've got so much information in my mind just being fascinated and endlessly curious and interested about films. So I hope that I succeeded in that and if you enjoy this sort of thing, definitely stay tuned. I will be putting up episodes just like this one for all of the movies and filmmakers that I've mentioned thus far and many many more. So stick around if you like that sort of thing. There's a lot more to come. I just wanted to conclude that two of the biggest takeaways that I see in this film are one, run after your dreams, be resilient in this pursuit of your dreams and your goals, whatever they might be, however ambitious they might be, so that you don't end up going through the motions like Max is in this film. And second, if you're a taxi driver and you see Tom Cruise with gray hair and in a gray suit approaching you, do not, I repeat, do not let that man into your cab because if you do, you will regret it. <laughs> it's funny that this thing just came into my mind, but I kind of mentioned how, even though this is the ending, I kind of mentioned that in the first scene of the film, I remember Vincent approaches Max's cab and Max is busy looking at the number that Annie left him because Annie gives him her, her number. So he scores that number, which Vincent taunts him later that, oh, he, you know, you can't even go out with that girl. You can't even ask her out on a date and all of that. And when Vincent doesn't receive a reply or acknowledgement from Max, he just huffs in annoyance and he decides to walk away and approach the other cabbie that's in line. And Max jumps out of his thoughts and yells at him to come back when he notices a potential fare leaving. And so he calls him back. So the lesson that I find in this is that you never know which decision could change up one whole night, which in turn can change up your whole life. So with that being said, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.